right, good morning, everybody. So glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll open to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 is where we're at. Last week, we took another step in our look at Peter's unfolding argument in chapter 3. We've already seen Pastor Peter's desire to stir up his audience's minds by reminding them of basic biblical truths. Then he focused them in particularly on the biblical promise of Christ's return, his promised return. Even though mockers will mock, because that's what mockers do, we must affirm along with the apostles and the prophets that Christ is coming back. And when he does, he will judge his enemies and he will vindicate his people. Christ is coming back. When he does, he will judge his enemies and he will vindicate his people. So we learned last week that we should be neither surprised nor discouraged nor led astray by the mocking of, their mock, of the mockers. Shouldn't catch us off guard that mockers going to mock. Shouldn't be surprised at that. But we should know that that will only last for a little while. That won't last forever. When Christ comes, he will shut their mouths. He will shut their mouths and he will vindicate his people. Secondly, we talked about how following the spirit and trusting God means obeying his word. We want to be driven by him and not by our flesh. We are learning that these scoffers, the false teachers, they're actually driven by the lust of the flesh. Everything that they're doing and the arguments they are building to support what they are doing is driven by the flesh. They want to indulge the desires of the flesh. And so they're creating this whole system which allows that, which, he, which necessitates ignoring a large part of God's word. We don't want to be like them. We want to be driven by his spirit. We want to be following him. We want to be trusting him and obeying him. And then finally, we talked about how we as God's people should long th for the return of Christ and we should live each moment in light of his coming. And if we are longing for the return of Christ, that will create in us faithful obedience. That's one of the things that Pastor Peter is doing in all of this talk about the return of Christ. He is motivating his people to holy living. And we're going to see that as chapter three unfolds. This is not some uh, nerdy academic exercise in eschatology and lining up all the things that are going to happen at the end. No, he's talking about the promised return of Christ as a motivation for us to live holy lives even now. So when we long for the return of Christ, it should motivate faithful obedience in us. Secondly, it should motivate passionate worship in us. To think that when Christ comes back and brings us to himself, we will spend all of eternity worshiping him should inspire our worship here and now. That what we are doing when we gather in this room, particularly together like this, is we are practicing for eternity singing his praises, and we want to keep doing that. It should also inspire confident hope. When life is hard here, when things are difficult, we look forward to the day of Christ's return, when he wipes away tears from our eyes, when there will be no more sickness and no more death and no more sorrow and no more suffering. When we anticipate the return of Christ, it gives us hope for today, helps us to persevere in this moment. And then finally, when we think about, we long for the return of Christ, it should produce in us bold proclamation. There is only one way to be saved. There is only one way to be reconciled to a holy God. There is only one way to have the hope of eternal life with him, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And people are not going to have faith in Jesus Christ. They're not going to believe in Jesus Christ if they've never heard of Jesus Christ, and they are never going to hear of Jesus Christ unless we, as the people of God, tell them, unless we preach the message of the gospel. So when we think about the promised return of Christ, it should motivate bold proclamation in us. Well, this week, what we're going to see in chapter 3 is another step with Pastor Peter in his argument that he's building throughout this chapter. The scoffers may say that everything is the same as it's always been. 
But that's actually not the case. And as he has done before, Peter's going to reach back into the Old Testament to establish God's track record in the past in order to build our confidence that he will continue to act consistently in the present. And that gives us confidence that he will continue to act consistently in the future as well. And as I did last week, I want to urge you not to merely wag your finger and shake your head at them today. Not to think primarily of the scoffers or the false teachers. Not just to do that. But also, maybe more importantly, we must examine our own hearts to see if we are leaning toward these same dangers ourselves. Particularly in this willful and convenient ignorance of God's word. Do, do we do that in our own lives? Do we conveniently and willfully neglect some of God's word because it gets in the way of our pursuit of lust? We should also keep in mind, as I said earlier, that Peter is leveraging all of this to inspire holy living in his audience. In fact, I think chapter 3, verse 11, it is really central to chapter 3, the argument as a whole. Look at it. It says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? If, if all of this is going to happen, what sort of people do you need to be today in holiness and godliness? We're going to talk much more about that in the weeks to come. Let's look today at 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, but we're going to look closely at verses 5 through 7 today. But we're going to keep building on this so that you see how all of this fits together week to week. Read with me, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your word today. Open our eyes that we may see your face by faith and that we may long for the day when we see you face to face. Lord, open our eyes to see your work in creation and in judgment throughout history. Open our eyes to our own sinful tendencies to ignore certain parts of your word, certain parts of your character. Let us see clearly today. and Let us respond appropriately with repentance where it's necessary, with trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and with worship always for you alone are worthy. We pray all this in Jesus' name. So these three verses that we're looking at today are super interesting to study. When you read various scholars, you'll find that most of them are on the same page when it comes to the overall meaning and the overall application of these verses. But those same scholars are absolutely all over the place when it comes to some of the particulars of these verses. This is largely because of the language itself. The language itself here is difficult. There are some strange words that Peter uses 
there's some odd sentence structure that makes even the process of translation difficult, let alone interpretation. And you're going to see the evidence of that in the differences in various translations. In fact, when I, when I got to verse 5, some of you were like, whoa, wait a minute, what, what is he reading? If you had ESV or NIV or CSB or some other translation in the New American Standard, you might have said, whoa, what, what happened right there? You're going to see all that. The good news is that even when scholars might disagree on some of the finer details in this passage, they end up at the same place in their overall understanding and application. That's good news for us because even though we might disagree, even in this room, on some of the finer details of what's going on in these verses, I hope that we can, at the end of the day, come to the same place in our overall understanding and our overall application of these verses. Dig in with me in verse 5. It gets tricky right off the bat. New American Standard says, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. ESV says it like this, For they deliberately overlook this fact. NIV says, but they deliberately forget. Those two translations lean in to the deliberate nature of the scoffer's forgetfulness. And that's fair. Like, I'm not, I'm not arguing with that translation. I'm not arguing with that understanding. It's fair. It's there in the language. It's there in the word. They are emphasizing that these scoffers and the false teachers are not ignorant in the basic sense of the word ignorant. In other words, they are not lacking knowledge. They are not lacking awareness as if they are total outsiders. Total outsiders would be ignorant of these things. Rather, these scoffers, the false teachers, we got to remember they are insiders. They have been taught. They have been exposed to the truth. They have been informed. And on some level, they have embraced these truths, but they have chosen to reject these truths. They have chosen deliberately to ignore these things, to deliberately forget these things because it's convenient for them to forget these things. The truths that they are ignoring are inconvenient for their pursuit of the lust. And that's what NIV and ESV emphasize. New American Standard, on the other hand, captures that same deliberateness but leans more into their insistence on the consistency of natural law throughout history. In other words, their overlooking of certain things in the Bible serves their purpose of undergirding their argument so that they can indulge in the flesh. They can indulge in the lust of their flesh. Their logic, in other words, is merely convenient for them. Now track with me. All this may seem super technical, but there's a very real application for us because we, all of us in this room, are in danger of doing this very same thing. We have a particular motivation, lust in our flesh, and then we build a particular argument from logic or observation that supports that motivation, that allows me to indulge the lust of my flesh. And to do that, I ignore, I ignore any truth from God's word that might get in the way of that. And the word ignore there is the right word for us. We're not ignorant. We're not ignorant of what God's word says. Rather, we intentionally disregard what we do know because it's inconvenient for the pursuit of our goal which oftentimes is the lust of the flesh. Let me say it another way. If the word of God, rightly understood, gets in the way of something you want, then you need to adjust that want, not the word of God. Is that fair? If, if the word of God gets in the way of your pursuit of something you want, word of God, rightly understood, gets in the way of the pursuit of something you want, then you need to make an adjustment to that want, not to the word of God. For example... One might say, I want to get rich. 
that's the lust that I have. That's the desire that I have. I want to get rich. And one way to get rich is to not pay taxes. Fair? That would help. And if you want to get rich, stop paying taxes. That will help. Get rich, right? And that's my desire. So, in order to do that, I justify my lack of paying taxes because my government is corrupt. And I actually convince myself that I am righteous in my refusal to pay taxes. And in doing that, I ignore, deliberately and conveniently, I ignore a number of passages in the Bible that speak to our obligation to submit to governing authorities in general. Even, even pagan ones, even evil ones, we are called to submit to, and texts in Scripture that mention paying taxes in particular. Do you remember Jesus when he was questioned about this, about paying a tax, and he gets a coin out of a fish's belly and pays the tax, right? Remember another place where he says, render to Caesar, what's Caesar's? And to God, what's God's? Those are inconvenient if I don't want to pay. Those, those passages like that are really inconvenient if I want to get rich. And one of my ways to get rich is to stop paying taxes. And so one of the things that we are tempted to do is say, I'll just forget that. I'll just forget those texts. I'll ignore those texts. And I'll camp out on texts that seem to make it say that God wants me to be rich. And so therefore, pursue any means toward that end I possibly can. Friends, we are in danger of letting the lusts of the flesh drive us in such a way that we deliberately overlook what God has clearly said. And that is dangerous. It is so dangerous and it's so subtle and sneaky. And so if you're doing that, if the word of God is getting in your way of your pursuit of some desire and you are adjusting the word of God rather than adjusting your desire, I say, stop it. Like, repent of that. That is broad road walking that will lead to destruction. Repent of that. And if you're thinking about doing it, if you're like trying, trying to develop some kind of argument, some kind of logic, some kind of reason that would allow you to, to pursue the lust of your flesh by ignoring the word of God, don't go down that road. If you're on that road, get off of it. If you're thinking about going down that road, don't do it in the first place. That's the road of the scoffer. That's the road of the false teacher. And it leads to destruction. So Pastor Peter says, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice, verse 5, part B, that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Here's where Peter gets into his argument. The scoffers maintain this. Everything continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, they are basically claiming that everything goes on just as it always has and the promise of some cataclysmic event like the return of Christ should just be rejected as an impossibility, right? Why, why would I be convinced that Christ is going to come and everything's going to change when nothing has ever changed? Everything just goes on. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, people are born, people die. It's always been the same. It's always been the same. Why would I think that something is going to change on down the road? But to do this, the false teachers and the scoffers have to overlook the very act of creation itself is what Peter is saying. At one time, the heavens and earth that they say never changed did not exist at all. And then God spoke and things came into being. They began. The heavens and the earth were formed by his word. That's a dramatic interruption of the status quo. Let's take a minute, though, and just rejoice and affirm. Let's celebrate that our God is the creator of everything that exists, right? And when you look around at each other, at this whole planet, at the whole solar, all of creation, it was made by him. 
Where did it come from? God made it. This is no cosmic accident. No, this is the deliberate work of an infinite, wise, powerful, and loving God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 9, asks this. What is the work of creation? And here's the answer. This is a good way to learn basic doctrine. What is the work of creation? The work of creation is God's making all things out of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. Right on. I'm going to say yes to, to all of that. It is God's making of all things out of nothing. Out of nothing. He didn't start with a bunch of raw materials and assemble it like we would. No, there was nothing and God spoke and things came to be by his word, right? Out of nothing, by his word, in the span of six days, and it's all very good. That's one of my favorite parts, especially in the Jesus Storybook Bible, the little, little kids thing that we read uh, sometimes, is the way she talks, the way Sally Lloyd-Jones talks about creation. God looked at it and said, you're good. You're good. That's the, that's the way she tells the story. You're good. And it was all very good. One thing is clear in this end of verse 5. God created everything that exists by his word, right? He simply spoke and things came into being. That's clear in verse 5. What's not as clear is the role that water played in all of this, right? That's a weird thing for Peter to say, right? That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. That's weird, right? What I know is that there are a lot of mentions of water in the creation account. Look at these in Genesis chapter 1. Just in the very beginning of creation, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was, was moving over the surface of the waters. Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Skip down to verse 6. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Water, water, water. It seems to be everywhere. Look at verse 9. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear would seem to be out of water, let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw it was good. All right. So what, what, what I want to say here is that I don't know exactly what all Peter means about by water, from water, but there's a lot of talk of water in Genesis chapter 1, and there are several approaches to Peter's usage of this. But I think it's best to see how his use of water here fits with his overall argument in these verses. In other words, Peter mentions water here because of the way he's going to unfold his argument later. So the question might be, how did God intervene to create everything that exists? By his word, through water. How did God intervene to judge the sinfulness of mankind? By his word, through water. How will God intervene to bring final judgment at the return of Christ? By his word, through fire, right? It's not, it's not water that third time, it's fire that third time. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. What I want you to see for now is that it's the same pattern throughout verses 5, 6, and 7, but there's an escalation at the end. That's why I think he's using water here. 
is to build this consistent argument throughout, to escalate to fire at the end. The scoffers, in their insistence on the consistency of all things, they deliberately overlook creation itself as an inconsistency. Creation itself is a divine interruption in which God, omnipotent God, interrupted the status quo with a major change by his word and with water. It's an interruption to the status quo. God is doing something abnormal there. John Piper said, we need to guard ourselves against the pseudo-scientific notion that nature is a law unto itself. It is not. The laws of nature are the tireless whisperings of the Almighty. And if he should choose to raise his voice, the cataclysm will come. That's an interesting point that we tend to think, and the scoffers seem to be saying, listen, everything's always gone on as it always has. You talk about a cataclysm that can't happen. There are certain laws that have to be upheld. What Peter is teaching us is that those laws were written by God, and he will do whatever he wants. And he has often intervened to bring about some upset to the status quo. He did it at creation. The laws of nature do not stand on their own. They're in the hands of God. He will do whatever he pleases. He's not bound by them. Rather, they are subject to him. But the scoffers have overlooked this. Or they've ignored it because it doesn't fit their agenda. It doesn't fit their agenda that everything hasn't always gone on the same way. That it didn't even start by accident. That God started it. That God created it all. And creation isn't the only time he did something like this. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, Peter says, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. This is obviously a reference to the global flood during the days of Noah, an event that Peter has already referenced in this letter to establish God's track record of both judging the sinful and saving the righteous. You remember that back in chapter 2? He brought out Noah and the ark to talk about God's faithfulness to judge and God's faithfulness to save. He judged the whole world, and he saved eight. He saved eight including Noah. Here, Peter's going to use that same story as a reminder that God has a track record of interrupting the status quo to accomplish his purpose. Think about how much of an interruption to the norm the flood was in Noah's day. Like, we can hardly imagine a flood like that one that destroyed all of humanity except Noah and his seven family members, but we in this room can imagine the devastation of a flood. We've seen it before. We've seen it here when it rains and rains and rains and homes get washed away and lives get lost. But imagine how unusual that first flood was, especially if, like many Bible scholars believe, it had never rained before that. That the earth had been watered from below before that and it started to rain and it rained and rained. This water falling from the sky, what in the world is going on here? And it rained and rained and rained and, and the waters came up and up and there was destruction and devastation. Imagine how much of an interruption to the norm that would have been. Imagine how unusual that first flood was. It wasn't just the worst flood. In all of history. It was the first flood in all of history. And take note, as Peter describes it here, that flood was not merely a natural disaster. It was God's direct judgment on the sinfulness of humanity. So here's what I want you to see as Peter's developing this argument. According to his purpose, God interrupted the status quo and did something no one could have ever imagined by sending a flood 
to destroy sinful humanity. The scoffers seem to have overlooked this little incident as they maintain their position that everything is just always trucked along the same way as it always has. Everything has just been consistent from the beginning. No, God created it out of nothing. That's not consistent. And God brought a flood that wiped out the whole world. That's not normal. Now, when Peter uses the phrase through which at the beginning of verse 6, he's probably making a reference to the word of God. After all, God told Noah what he was going to do. And he told Noah what he must do in order to be saved. Look at it in Genesis 6. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. God told him. So it fits the same pattern. God created by his word through water. God brought judgment on sinful humanity by his word through water. We could probably spend a ton of time talking about dozens of other stories in the Bible that the scoffers also conveniently overlooked. We could talk about a hundred other places where God stepped in and interrupted the status quo where things didn't keep rocking along just like they always had. For instance, you remember in Joshua chapter 10 when Joshua prays, Lord, let the sun stand still and it stands still for an hour? That's not normal. That's not normal that time wouldn't move forward for an hour of the day. Do you remember in Hezekiah's day when the sun moved backward? When the sundial moved backward an hour? That's not normal. Do you remember when the Lord parted the Red Sea so the children of Israel could walk through and then he brought it back down on the Egyptian army? Do you remember that? That's not normal. Do you remember when he rained fire from heaven to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? That's not normal. Do you remember when he multiplied the oil and the flour for that widow lady? That's not normal. God is constantly throughout the Bible doing things that are not normal. He's constantly interrupting the status quo to accomplish his purpose. What I want you to know is that the omnipotent God has a track record of doing things like this. Things that are out of the ordinary. Things that are against the status quo in order to bring judgment against sinners and to bring salvation to his people. So, look at verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. This is really the heart of Peter's argument. He's building all of this to affirm the promise of Christ's coming despite the convenient amnesia of the scoffers. God will continue to act according to his track record. God will keep his promise to send his son back in glory to bring judgment to sinners and salvation to those who repent of their sins and trust in him. him. Notice the parallels throughout the verses we've looked at. By his word, with water, he created the heavens and the earth. By his word, with water, He judged the whole earth in the flood. By his word and with fire, this part says, he will bring final judgment to the heavens and the earth. This is clearly an escalation of things. This is, is 2 Peter is the only place the heavens and earth being destroyed by fire is mentioned. I think Peter mentions it for two reasons. Number one, it's an escalation, right? What What they have seen is less than what they will see. What God has done in interrupting the status quo at this point is nothing compared to what he's going to do, right? What he's going to do is consistent, but it's escalated. And 
Part of why Peter says it this way is because he knows the promise that God had made in Genesis chapter 9. That God said he would not destroy the world again with a flood. So Peter says he's going to do it with a fire. Look at Genesis chapter 9 verse 11. He says, I established my covenant with you and all flesh will never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. So Peter says, fire to show an escalation and fire to show God's faithfulness to his promise that he's not going to destroy the world with a flood. He'll do it with a fire. But maybe the most interesting part of this is the very last phrase, and the destruction of ungodly men. And the destruction of ungodly men. You see, the return of Christ is not merely a cataclysmic event for the creation, but for ungodly men in particular, namely the scoffers and the mockers. Similar to the flood in Noah's day, but even more dreadful and terrifying because it brings eternal condemnation. Now, the scoffers and the mockers, they may deny the reality of this coming judgment, but that will not suffice for them to escape it. They may deny the reality of the coming judgment, but that will not suffice for them to escape it because there's only one way to escape it. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way for a sinful man like you and me to be reconciled to a holy God. Jesus died on the cross in our place, taking our sin, suffering the punishment that we deserve, and offering us his righteousness, offering us his life. And so I invite you today to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. There's only one way to escape that judgment. It is by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Repent and believe today. Michael Green says, The main point in this verse should not be obscured by the problems over the details. It is that God who created the beginning of all things has the power to end them. You know how my dad used to say this to me when I was a kid? I brought you into this world, and I could take you out of this world. Right? Is that not somewhat what God is saying here? I made it all. I've wiped it out once. I've done all of these things. I've interrupted the status quo over and over, and the Bible is full of stories of him interrupting the status quo. I brought you into this world, and I will take you out of this world. That's part of what's going on in this text. So repent and believe. You want to be on the right side of him when he comes back in glory and judgment to judge his enemies and vindicate his people. So there are three areas of application in this text today for us. What we want to take home from this. Number one, don't be selective in your remembering of the Bible. Finding loopholes in the Bible is not the goal of Christian living. That may be breaking news for some of you. Finding loopholes in the Bible is not the goal of Christian living. Like looking for a way in the Bible so that you can satisfy the lust of your flesh without contradicting God's word. That's not the goal of Christian living. We're not looking for loopholes. We're looking to just submit ourselves to the word of God. That pattern that the scoffers are adopting here needs to be avoided in us. The pattern is they've got a lustful desire. So they build a supporting argument and they ignore the scriptures. That's a dangerous pattern that many of us can get caught in. We can get caught in. We've got a lustful desire. We've got a supporting argument. We've got a bunch of friends who endorse that supporting argument. And we ignore the scriptures that contradict it. Listen, if you've got a desire and the word of God is in the way, adjust the desire. 
and submit to the word. Don't be adjusting the word of God to suit your desires. That's the way the false teachers live. That's the broad road that leads to destruction. So we want to pray that the Lord would show us where we are doing this in our own lives, not just the way they are doing this, but the way we are doing this. Lord, show us that and grant us repentance to submit to your word and obey it. Number two, God has established a track record of interrupting the status quo. So we can be confident that he will keep his promise to send the Lord back. He will keep his promise of the return of Christ. The question is, do you long for the return of Christ? Like, are you looking forward to that? Do you desire it? Do, I, I'm getting ready to read a book uh, by John Piper about the second coming of Christ. And he's motivated by 2 Timothy chapter 4. He wrote this whole book as a meditation on 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at this. At the end of Paul's days, this is what he says. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All who have loved his appearing. Are we among those who love his appearing? who long for and desire the return of Christ, who await that day with joy and anticipation, with passionate worship and bold proclamation. Are we leading toward that day and loving that day? I hope we are. It's coming. Whether we, whether we are leaning toward it or not, it's coming. God has established this track record, and he will keep his promise. And the last thing I want to talk to you about is kind of a secondary application of all of this, but it's a pastoral application. I think it fits the pattern that Peter is establishing here, but maybe drives it home particularly for those of us in the room because I don't know that there are very many of us in the room who are saying, Jesus is not coming back. That's crazy. Jesus is not coming back. We don't need to worry about it. We don't need to invest in holy living. We don't need to be about repentance. We don't need to be about trusting. We don't need to be about worshiping. Jesus is not coming back. Stop talking about that. I don't think you're like that. I don't think anybody in the room is like that. But I think in some ways... We have the posture of the scoffer by saying, everything just kind of comes and goes the same way it always has. Every, every day is just kind of like the last. And tomorrow will be pretty much just like today. It's just normal. Everything, everything tracks along as it always has. And we're not looking for him to interrupt the status quo. So that's my question. Are you ready for him to interrupt your status quo? Or are you locked in? that same type of thinking as the scoffers. Everything goes along just as it always has. Do you think that the Lord would never break in? That the Lord would never interrupt? That the Lord would never do something different in your life? Let me, let me talk to you about a couple of categories. He might just do this. Do you think that the Lord would not break in in discipline or judgment against you for your sin? You think, oh, no, no, that, that'll never happen. I, I just do whatever I want, and tomorrow will be just like today. I'll just live however I want, and nothing will ever change. The Lord doesn't, he doesn't step in, he doesn't interrupt the status quo to bring discipline to me or judgment to me because of my sin. I'm not worried about that at all. I would say you probably need to be worried about that. I would say you probably need to be worried about that based on Romans chapter 1, verse 8, that says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
That seems to fit with exactly what the scoffers are doing. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, and the wrath of God not will be revealed against them, but is being revealed against them. That's the principle, I think. The application of that is what Paul says to the church at Corinth when they are abusing each other and sinning at the Lord's Supper. Do you remember this? That they're not coming to the table in a worthy manner. And Paul says, for this reason, because of your sin, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and some have even fallen asleep. That means they died. Because of their sin, God broke in, upset the status quo to bring judgment, to bring discipline for their sin. Some of them are sick, some of them are weak, and some of them have even died. Now, I am not saying that all of your suffering is this way. I'm not saying every sickness is God's breaking in in discipline or judgment against you for your particular sin. I'm not saying that all of it is like that. I am saying that some of it might be like that. I don't think we can read the Bible and not have a category for that. I think we have been so influenced by what we saw just last week in small group Bible study when the disciples say, oh, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? And he says, no, 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 this, this one is not like that. This is so the glory of God could be revealed. We tend to think, take that and say, no suffering is because of sin. When the reality is, if you read the rest of the Bible, some of it really is. So let me, let me just put it plainly. If you are living in some kind of unrepentant sin and you suddenly get sick or weak, that should be a red flag. And should bring you to repentance. Perhaps the Lord is breaking the status quo to get your attention to bring about repentance. You ready for that? I'm telling you that's a loving and gracious thing if the Lord would do that. If you are walking in your sin, it is a loving and gracious thing for the Father to interrupt your status quo. Even to bring pain if it brings about repentance. To let you go on is not loving. It's not gracious. Are you ready for that? You ready for him to break in? To bring about repentance? Maybe a little happier one. Let's, let's talk about a happier interruption. Are you ready for God to break in and bring about conversion? Are you ready for God to, to break into the status quo, somebody just living their life? Maybe it's you just going on the broad road that leads to destruction. Are you ready for God to break in, interrupt that, and change someone entirely? He does that, right? You remember the story of the Apostle Paul walking along the road to Damascus with letters to arrest Christians for trusting in Christ and preaching about him and not just arrest them. He was going to see that they were killed. And along the way, he's interrupted. God breaks into his status quo and he gives him a new heart and a new life and a new mission. He radically changes him. That's a great story, right? I got a story like that. And if you are in Christ, you have a story like that. You were going along your status quo, and the Lord stepped in. He interrupted. He broke it up, and he changed your life forever. You ready for that? Some of you desperately need that, and the rest of us should desperately desire that. We, we just sit back and say, oh, things go just the way they've always gone. We're going to have another disciple now. Disciple now will come and go, and nothing will change. Lord forbid it that it would go on and nothing change. We want to see him break in in conversion. 
to take someone who belongs to the kingdom of darkness and transfer them to the kingdom of his beloved son. To take someone who is dead and give them life. He breaks in and he does it. He did it for Paul. He's done it for me, many others in this room. What about this? Are you ready for God to break in, interrupt the status quo, to send you out? Are you ready for him to interrupt the way you've got it all planned and say, oh, I've got a new way for you. I've got a new direction for you. I'm going to send you to the nations. I want you to quit your job, sell your house, move your family to the darkest place on the planet and take the light of Jesus Christ there because they've got no light. You ready for that? Expecting that? No, 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 no. I don't want that. I've got my plan. I've got my plan. I'm going to go to college, and then I'm going to go to law school, and then I'm going to work in my dad's practice, and then I'm going to take it over when he retires, and I've got it made. I've got the American dream right here. You know who I'm talking about, right? And the Lord interrupted that status quo and said, no, 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 sir. i got a dark place for you to go with the light of the gospel. And he went. And things have changed forever because of that. Change, things have changed forever in Central Asia. Things have changed forever at First Baptist Church Harrisburg because of that. Are you ready for him to interrupt the status quo and send you out from here to be a missionary? That's what I'm talking about. Not that you've always had that dream since you were a little kid, but that he stepped in and interrupted and sent you out. Maybe he's not sending you out to the nations. Maybe he's sending you to serve in some local church in America. Do you know that the average age of Illinois Baptist pastors, wrap your mind around this, Illinois Baptist pastors, average age, 58 years old. I got nothing against 58-year-olds. This is not what I'm saying. That's old for average. I got, it might not be old. It might not be old itself, but that's old for average. I am 15 years away from being an average-aged Illinois Baptist pastor. And I don't think I'll catch it unless the Lord interrupts. Unless the Lord interrupts, this same group that I'm a part of is just going to move and get older, and then they're going to die. And we're going to get older, and we're going to die, and there's no one up and coming. There's basically no one up and coming. Now listen, you will not get rich pastoring a local church. You will not get famous pastoring a local church. It's probably not your dream since you were a little kid, but maybe God interrupts all that. He calls you out, gives you this desire that goes against all logic and burns in your bones. This is the way I say this often. Who's next? Who's next to have their status quo interrupted? And be sent out. Are you ready for God to interrupt for discipline? Are you ready for God to interrupt for conversion? Are you ready for God to interrupt in sending people out? How about this? Are you ready for God to interrupt and bring revival? Like, have you read any of the stuff that's been going on for the last week and a half at Asbury University? That's not normal. I'm not, I'm not going not, to not make some estimation, some affirmation or rejection of that. I would just say, that's not normal. 
That's an interruption of the status quo. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for God to move in such a way that you wouldn't get to Kentucky Fried Chicken by noon? Are you ready for God to move in such a way that you actually come to church two weeks in a row? Are you ready for God to move in such a way that you come back on a Sunday night? Or are we tucked into our status quo? We just like it, like it the way it is. Let's cruise it from here to glory. I guess what I want to say is like this, this cry of our hearts, come Lord Jesus. This cry of our hearts, come Lord Jesus, can't just be about that day to come. I want us to wake up every day with a cry, come Lord Jesus, today. If it's not your return in glory to end it all, let it be to stir something up in my life today. Come, Lord Jesus, interrupt the status quo today for me, for my kids, for my neighbors, for Harrisburg. If, if we just say, eh, nothing ever changes. Everything's just the same. It's going to be the same tomorrow. I wonder if we're lining ourselves up more with the scoffers than with the people of God. Let's line up with the people of God. Let's say, come, Lord Jesus. Shake it up right now. Shake it up in my heart, in my life today. Let's stand together and pray. Oh, Father, help us to see your track record of interrupting the norm, interrupting the status quo for the purpose of bringing judgment and salvation. Help us to trust that you will do that in a perfect way when you send your son in glory to return. But help us also to see that you're doing that every day in our lives. So make the cry of our heart, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus and split the sky. Come Lord Jesus and shake up my life. Give us that heart. We know in this room there are men and women and boys and girls who know nothing of these things. They are still dead in their trespasses and sins. We also know that only you can make a dead man live. And so we pray that you would do it, that you would open their eyes to their sinfulness, to your holiness, that you would open their eyes to the sacrifice of Christ in their place, that you would grant them repentance to turn away from their sin and grant them faith to trust completely in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ so that he will be glorified in their life forevermore. We pray it in his name.